Kyle Worley, and I'm joined by my co-host, Jen Wilkin and JT English, and we have been at it today. <laughs> we have been going for it. We have not had a recording day like this in um, a hot minute, and I, I feel it. Mm-hmm. Not um, sad. Not sad about that. <laughs> We've been recording in twos, not in threes and fours. But today we just we had a lot of ground to cover and we're excited to be doing it with you. Hey, listen, uh, if you're listening to this episode uh, really anytime before July, uh, then you're a part of our Patreon community. Thank you for that. Thank you for your support. Um, uh, we're, we're grateful that you love the podcast and your support of the podcast helps us do other cool things uh, like launch the Family Discipleship Podcast, which has just finished its second season and is growing and being an incredible resource for so many folks. JT was just telling me that his wife was on a trip with like a bunch of other people and they were like, oh man, the Family Discipleship Podcast, Family Discipleship. And these are like people from all over the country, like all stages of life, all kind of different sectors of Christian influence. So it's just cool to hear that. And I'll tell you that would not have been possible apart from the support of this audience. So thank you for supporting Knowing Faith. We're grateful for it. And uh, we want to answer your questions. I always, with the Patreon community, want to try to answer all your questions. So we have all of them. Um, I'll just say, it just means we have to be a little bit faster. If we, if we try to get to all of them, we have to be a little bit quicker. So we might be a little bit fast here. And if so, it's not because we're trying to move flippantly. I just, I want to get to all your questions. Um, you guys are great and we want to help. Uh, and we want to, I don't know, respond to your questions. So we might move through, through some of them fast. We might get bogged down in a couple of them, but this is going to feel brisk. But we hope you know, we're really grateful for your support and uh, ready to jump into these. Here we go from Liren. And if I mess up your name, forgive me. Not a personal thing. He messes um, up Roman names. I messed up, I messed up Bible names. So, like, uh, why should he give you more respect than he gives to Bible names? <laughs> <laughs> oh boy, I love how we're starting this. Uh, we've uh, Liren. Hey, Liren. I see you, sis. Uh, we've heard and subsequently forgotten. Wow, dig the title of JT's dissertation. Oh, oh gosh. I forgot it too. <laughs> oh man, I thank you, sister. You have blessed me with this mm-hmm. question already. Mm-hmm. Jen and Kyle, if you had to write a dissertation, what would it be on? Bonus points for a title. Yeah, if you guys were to do some hard academic work and <laughs> spend years studying the Bible mm-hmm. and theology, what would you guys call it? Mm. <laughs> How to nap anywhere, anytime, <laughs> any place. Theology of napping. By Vertical, horizontal, <laughs> how to nap. That's a good one. Um, I think mine would be on uh, professional wrestling as America's true art form. <laughs> like, it is the quintessential American art form. I would do, like, that would be my dissertation. The funny like, thing is, is Kyle and I have lots of disagreements. This might be our most heated disagreement. Of what? Of, like, the like value America's of professional wrestling? Is baseball, or at least football, or maybe basketball, and you bring in wrestling. It's so weird. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I, I, you'll have to read my dissertation to find out why, but... Uh, uh, yeah, most dissertations have as much truth to them as that dissertation uh, will. Well, fair enough. Christine says, thank you for uh, thank you all for your faithful ministry. Y'all are a blessing. This is a GT, JT question, but I'm completely open to answers from Jen and Kyle also. My new pastor has grown a lot from his uh, United Pentecostal Church roots. 
but isn't quite where I'm at in regards to the Trinity. I appreciate that he's looking to the word and growing, but this is still my biggest concern. He says, if N.T. Wright is a Trinitarian, then so is he. I don't have any context to interpret that well. He's also leery of the word persons when speaking of the Trinity, but does affirm distinction and oneness. He agrees that the Father is not the Son, but all three are one God. Can you speak about a, a bit about what I'm losing if I agree to disagree here? Is there a major loss in saying three beings, one God instead? So like, here's the deal. Is there a loss? If I came to you and said, JT, I want to work at your church. You know me, I'm your friend. We host this podcast together, but I've had a change in my Trinitarian theology. And my articulation is three beings, one God, not three persons in one God, uh, or three persons in one substance or three persons in one being or whatever. Would you let me work at your church? Yeah. Wow. So questions like this are hard because they're so circumstantial. I don't know your pastor. I'm not having a conversation with him. I'd love to sit down with him someday and have a two or three hour kind of hash it out. Hey, what do you mean by that? And what are you saying by that? And like when you say if N.T. Wright's a Trinitarian, so am I. Like that has no grounding. Like N.T. Wright is a Trinitarian, but he's not often writing about Trinitarian dogmatic issues. He's writing about biblical history. He's writing about biblical studies and uh, perspectives on Paul. So I, I, I don't know what that means. Like you don't get to associate yourself with somebody else who's not writing about the topic that we're talking about and say, I agree with them. So I think the language that you're, so with all of those caveats there, let me just try to answer simply. The language your pastor is using is problematic. If he's a United Pentecostalist, that is outside the bounds of orthodoxy and outside the bounds of of what we would say the Apostles' Creed, Nicaea, Chalcedon, and most importantly, John 13 to 17 is teaching us about inter-Trinitarian relations. So I'm not calling your pastor a heretic. I'm definitely not doing that. I'd want to talk to him. I'd want to get to know him and, and demonstrate Christian charity and love towards him. But it sounds like he's outside the bounds of what the church is handing down to him. And that demonstrates a certain level of, I would just say, I, I don't want to, I'm not trying to you know, impugn him, but kind of a pridefulness or an arrogance of, I actually have better language than the church has given me. And that's, that's problematic, I think. And that could even go deeper into some other issues as well. So So uh, I forget who asked this question, brother or sister who asked this. I think it was a sister who asked this. I would just say, this is a, at least a yellow flag, if not a red flag that I, that I would chase down a little bit. Is that fair? Would you guys agree with that? That's a hundred percent how I'd say it. Okay. I just invoked a little uh, study session for my, for my um, forthcoming PhD dissertation on napping. (laughs) <laughs> oh my gosh. Dang. Uh, Malia asks, our pastor views Burn. keeping a Sabbath as wise and beneficial, but doesn't believe it's necessarily a command we have to keep. He says we don't I see just, it. I just want to be clear. Jen just said Nicaea, Chalcedon, <laughs> and the upper room discourse are boring. Snoozer. <laughs> um, Malia says, my pastor views keeping Sabbath as wise and beneficial, doesn't believe it's necessarily a command we have to keep. Is this true? What are your thoughts? Yes, Sabbath is not a command we have to keep. The law has been fulfilled in Christ. We do not, we, we, we do not have to Sabbath in order to be faithful to God. Uh, you should Sabbath. Um, Wrong. The, 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 what? Wrong. Kyle. I actually agree with Kyle on this. What do you mean it's okay. wrong? Say some words. Say some more words then. The uh, the Sabbath is a part uh, – the S- Sabbath as it's understood in the Torah, which I would imagine is what you're saying here, is a part of the law that is fulfilled in Christ Jesus. And ultimately, he is our ultimate Sabbath rest. And the fulfillment of that law, like the fulfillment of all law, is no longer necessary for covenant fidelity. But it is beneficial 
for covenant faithfulness is how I would say we, it. We should Sabbath not in order to be faithful to God so that we can be justified by him, but we should Sabbath because God has been faithful to us and has justified us in Christ. Exactly. Yes, but also it's in the list with murder and adultery. So we should Sabbath as unto the Lord in the same sense that we also do not murder as unto the Lord. So like- But we don't not murder because it's in the law. Well, it's, it's in the law because we ought not to do it. Exactly. And I agree with you 100% with what you just said. So do we have to measure how many steps we take on the Sabbath? Does it have to be a certain day of the week? These are all questions we can entertain. But is the law incumbent upon New Testament believers? Yeah. Hang on. We're so, just, let's just be clear that the person who wants to nap is now concerned that we don't want to measure steps. As unto the Lord. It feels like you should be as advocating for this. Yeah, my dissertation is going to be on Sabbath. No, um, but I just, yeah. How many I, steps can you take on nap day? The um, the Old Testament is saturated with the concept of Sabbath as it, it broadens it. It doesn't narrow it. And so I actually would be very cautious about saying anything that makes people think Sabbath is not something that is incumbent upon us in the same sense that it is incumbent upon us not to murder. But Sabbath is trickier than murder because um, you don't really need a checklist of how to make sure you're not murdering someone in the same way that you might need a little bit of guidance on what is and isn't Sabbath rest. Let me let me ask you this, Jen. It just we're I think we're all saying the same thing. We're kind of dancing around. Oh it. gosh, a checklist for <laughs> have yeah, I murdered? Jen, have I not yeah, murdered? Uh, oh gosh, uh, <laughs> uh, Jen, would you say this? We don't. We should not murder. Not because we need to be justified by the law, but we should not murder because we have already been justified by the law. The motivation for not murdering has been has been redefined. Well, yeah. I mean, justification and sanctification is the distinction that you're making there. But um, And sanctification is part of the gospel, right? Yes, JT. <laughs> Smarmy, smarmy, smarmy. But this is what she's she's asking. Does a, should a believer still pr- practice some form of Sabbath? And to that, I would say a hundred percent yes. Yeah, yes, but you said should. you said no. No, but must. By must, the way, must. this is going to be the longest Q and A. Yeah, we're on question four of four hundred and two. <laughs> yeah, I don't usually do this, but I'm just going to say if you want to think more about Sabbath, there's I, I wrote a chapter on it in in my book. Whoa! Which, wow. <laughs> well, I think that might be the first time you have ever because you made me so mad, Kyle. <laughs> wow! <laughs> I I, You're I actually naps. Think- I mean, everything I'm about not. this is provocative. I'm 100% on Sabbath. It's a part of our statement of faith. That's how much I believe in Sabbath right. for the believer. There you go. Okay. It's a part of your statement of faith? It is. We, we, have, a, we have a, it is a part of our okay, statement Okay, I'm with of you, faith. Jen. <laughs> no, 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 I mean, I mean, we have a pro-Sabbatarian principle as a part of our statement of faith, not an anti one. So I am 100% on board with what Jen is saying. I just want to distinguish between the mandate of the law and how it is. Do, how, do, you, have, do you have murder in your statement of faith? <laughs> no. Why not? <laughs> I, don't think, I, I don't think most people need to be told to not murder. Ah. Mm. Uh. <laughs> okay, right. whatever. Keep Danielle, going. Good job. Dan- Good question. Danielle says... Uh, would you be willing for Kyle, would you be willing to talk about your relationship with foster care as a five-year foster parent and now adoptive mom of three? I'd love to hear about your theology surrounding foster care, how your faith informs how you've participated in caring for foster children and or their families. It's such a particular lifestyle. I feel like somehow 
know you better just by knowing you're involved in foster care. Um, yeah, you're longer, you're into the process longer than we are. I'd love to talk with you about what your theology of foster care is because mine is being tested. Um, but uh, no, I, yeah, we got into foster care because uh, we're, we're adoptive parents, um, uh, Lauren and I, uh, and proudly. Um, we have a daughter who's adopted. We love her and we, we love her uh, biological mom. Um, and so it's an open adoption. And we're grateful for it. Uh, we, we participate in foster care because we wanted to continue to be like a home that is opened up to the vulnerable. There's a lot of different ways that a home can do that. So I'm not saying foster care is the only one. There's a lot of ways that a home can be can move towards vulnerable people as a family. And foster care is one. You don't have to be what you do. It's one of the things that we do. just want to make sure I'm not making a Christian mandate for foster care. Uh, but we got into it and um, – it has been, as you know, if you're a five-year foster parent, you know far better than I do um, that it is a it's a very testing environment um, and a trying environment, um, particularly in just all the overlapping parties that are involved. And we're learning a lot. I say I would say the thing that I'm learning most, I think, is something that all parents have to learn, and they learn it in their own unique ways, which is that children belong first and foremost to the Lord, mm-hmm. um, regardless of biological, adoptive, foster, doesn't matter. Children belong to the Lord. And ultimately, our parenting is about entrusting them to the Lord over and over and over again. That's, That's good. I wish, Daniel, I could say that I've learned something more than that. I haven't yet, but I'm sure you have. And if you're on Instagram, please message me because I would really love to learn from you because I bet you have a lot to share. Um, John Paul Brule, uh, uh, what habits have you guys found out to be the most beneficial for your spiritual life and family life? Napping. Bang. <laughs> there it is. Sabbathing. Uh, (laughs) regular rhythms of rest yeah uh i'll give a few of mine just that you know i don't have this nailed or perfect or whatever but they're real simple like i really try to read my bible before i get on my phone i try to work out in the morning as best i can and by workout you don't have to work out the way i do it could just be a walk or it could be moving and stretching in the morning one of the things that i've got a spiritual coach that's helping me just kind of maintain integration and health and he just keeps saying jt stay in your body get in your body i'm in my head all the time and so just finding a regular rhythm of like moving could be just getting outside getting in a walk feeling grass underneath your feet like just movement has become increasingly important to me and finding ways to remember god created my body he created your body and for you to use it feel it be in it is really important Another one I would say, uh, of course, this is going to sound not very spiritual, and it's going to really resonate with what Jen just said, is sleeping. Mm-hmm. Like I, I've actually been uh, – so I, I wear a couple – I've changed. I only wear one at a time, but devices that help me know like how much are you moving? How much are you sleeping? Is your heart rate okay? Uh, the, the one that I have on now really helps me track my sleep, and I was sleeping way less than I thought I was, like way less. Like I would spend eight hours in bed and I would think, oh, I'm getting eight hours of sleep. But I was actually getting like five hours and 45 minutes of sleep because it takes a while to go to sleep. You wake up, you turn, you toss, and your body's not resting during that time. So I've really increased the amount of time that I just spend in bed. Like I, I get in bed around 9.30, 9 o'clock most nights, and I'm up by about 5.30 or 6 or so. And that helps me get enough rest so that I feel prepared for the day. So Bible moving, moving and sleep are the things that I'm spending time. There's others, but I would say those are the ones that I'm, I'm elevating in my life right now. Yeah. I got to be outside some, I need to be like watching things grow. I need my, I need my moments of transcendence in nature. Mm -hmm. 
uh, and I need uncluttered thought space. That's a big deal for me. So like, um, I don't listen to anything when I'm in the car. I don't, I typically don't listen to anything when I'm taking a walk. Like, um, and I'm not, I'm not mandating that. I'm saying for, for me, I, um, I need to declutter what's in my head by limiting the noise. I don't listen to music. I don't listen to podcasts. I don't listen to books on tape. Uh, my husband's actually the opposite. So I don't say this as something that is mandated, but that's what helps me a lot is to just, for the work that I have to do, I need my brain to just sit idle um, to, to be able to have um, the right kinds of thoughts um, bubble up for, for, for what I need to be teaching and thinking about next. Yeah. Scripture memory. I know scripture memory seems like such a basic, like 101. 1980s. Yeah. But like truly scripture memory, especially now, because I know you can find scripture wherever you want on your phone immediately. And you might feel like, well, why do I need it? Because it does something to you Mm -hmm. when you memorize it. It works on you. So scripture memory. Um, Yeshua Cornejo, how do you in your personal lives find the balance between Christian liberty and holiness, particularly as it pertains to your Christian witness? Um, that's a good question. I don't know if you've got something particular in mind here. I'll just answer it broadly. Um, I find myself, actually Romans challenged me a lot and studying Paul's letters has challenged mm-hmm. me a lot on how I think about Christian liberty. Um, and I think uh, if you had asked me 10 years ago, I would have advanced like a lot of arguments about Christian liberty that were like really more about me, whereas a lot of the arguments in Christian liberty are really more about the other. And that's a way that I'm having to change the way I think about Christian liberty. Christian liberty is not fundamentally about what I get to do. Christian liberty is fundamentally about what I am not going to do to bless other people. Mm-hmm. Like what, what are the things I'm going to abstain from? I often used to think about Christian liberty as I'll just say it plainly. And I'm not saying this is what you mean. And I'm not saying it's what everybody who talks about Christian liberty means. I used to think about Christian liberty as a way to be worldly without paying a cost personally or corporately for the church. Mm. And now more often than not, I'm going Christian liberty is a way to abstain from worldliness. And I want more of that in my life and less of the former. That's a good answer, Kyle. So Taylor uh, ask, uh, what is JT, what is Phoebe's role in the delivery of Romans? Yeah, so we just kind of talked about this in a previous episode. Hopefully you've listened to that. If not, I'll just kind of give a brief answer here. If I was saying broadly, we don't know. Uh, there is not a verse in the Bible that tells us. And here is what Phoebe did. But we can we can use some really well-informed conjecture, uh, some really well kind of based reasoning about what we believe uh, Paul encouraged her and exhorted her to do. It's in all likelihood. So she is, first of all, she's a deaconess of the church of Sincrea, and she's a benefactor, a patron of Paul's ministry. So she's a woman of means. She's a woman who's helping ministry go forward in, 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 uh, indispensable ally in the life of Paul. And we believe that she's in all likelihood carrying this letter that Paul writes to the church in Rome. She brings it to them. And the very normative practice would be she reads it. She opens it and the church gathers together and you've got Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians now talking together about this letter that Paul has. And Phoebe is likely addressing them uh, with Paul's inspired words. That's good. Um, Miranda asked, just for fun, when you were in elementary school, what would we have found you usually doing during recess? Tetherball, trading baseball cards, bullying kids for their lunch money. That sounds like corner. Gin. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, yeah, all of the above. No, um, 
Oh, I like, I was always, this is going to come out the wrong way. So let me finish the statement. I was always chasing the boys around on the playground. I wanted to be included (laughs) in what they were doing. Is anyone surprised by this? No, I wasn't like chasing them to like date them. I was chasing them because I wanted to get to do what they were doing. I perceived it to be more interesting, which is probably saying volumes about my personality. (laughs) I, we just, I mean, we always played flag football. I mean, it was get out there as quick as you can. The game pauses for the first recess. You pick it exactly right there back up for lunch. And then afternoon recess, the exact same thing. I mean, I just countless hours of flag football at Mark Hopkins elementary school. Mm. Yeah. Kickball. I felt like kickball was the sport of our elementary school. Um, and oh, four square. Uh, guess, we had four square. Did you have that? Oh, four square was fun too. Mm-hmm. Four square. Um, kickball. Lindsay Peoples. Hey, Lindsay. Hey, Lindsay. Hey, uh, we're guys, uh, guys, she, she, she knows us and she still listens. <laughs> I know. Right. That's crazy. Um, yeah, I can't believe we haven't scared Lindsay peoples off. Um, uh, you're great, Lindsay. Um, we're, uh, th- oh, wow. And she knew exactly where to hit us. Uh, we're at, <laughs> this is a, this is a sniper shot question. Were Adam and Eve indwelt by the spirit? Did they lose him? And is the Holy Spirit's indwelling of believers now restoring of what was broken in the garden? Oh, wow, Lindsay, sniper shot. Mm-hmm. She knows exactly where to mm-hmm. aim. I'm just going to put my cards on the table. I've said it before. I'm going to keep saying it. We're going to go for that, it. I know where you're I going. I know scholars go. disagree with me. Because you're right. Be- I believe that the old, that if you, are a, if you were in covenant relationship with God, you're indwelt by the Holy Spirit. You have just Amen. totally eliminated Amen, the entire need for the storyline of the Old Testament. We, we've had, had this conversation the need again for the and again. You have I'm with Kyle. For the temple. It's still two you, against one. Why world? Not next when Greg question. Allison's here. Uh, <laughs> What's the next question, Kyle? That, that makes Genesis Thanks for to dropping Malachi in, Lindsay. make no sense. You're wrong. You are wrong. You are wrong. Why are they crying when, when the Holy Spirit does not indwell the temple? If they have him. We've talked. We have talked about this. And you're Adelaide. wrong. Okay, next question. Good night, um, people. Way to go, Lindsay. Read your, read your um, Bibles. Lindsay's so happy right now. <laughs> he really is. Uh, <laughs> can you speak pastorally and practically about transitioning out of ministry in a small church that's not in the best of health? In anticipation of this day, I've done all I can to prepare the women to study God's word for themselves. With the time to commend them to a ministry team more concerned with men's growth and all growth is fast approaching. I'm struggling to entrust these women to the care of those I can't trust that will seek their spiritual development. Have you, have any of you had any experience with graciously handing over your sheep in a church you have deep concerns about? Dang. Um, <laughs> Kyle, I, I, this, is, this is a hard oh, look question. At the time. I got to go. But I thought your answer uh, about foster care and adoption is the exact same answer here. Not only do children belong to the Lord, churches do. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And that doesn't mean we don't care, we don't love, we don't grieve. It doesn't take away the emotional challenge, despair, trust, stress that we might have in our lives as we transition in, in ministry roles. I mean, we've all had ministry role transitions, every single one of us, from good places to good places, from bad places to good places. Mm-hmm. Like all, all of us have had that. And ultimately, what you have to do in any transition is remind yourself Jesus loves his church. Jesus cares for his church more than I do. The Holy Mm -hmm. Spirit is present with his church and Jesus will care for these people the way that he intends to, whether or not I'm here. Mm -hmm. I think, you know, and like you're in a, it sounds like this listener is in a, 
is in a hard spot right now trying to evaluate to, whether to stay or go and what the implications will be. But I would say, like, even in, in my own case, I'm, I'm actually in a good spot um, where I'm trying to weigh that uh, in terms of like my stage of life. There's always a reason where you should be asking the question, am I still supposed to be here? Right. And, uh, and I, and, and it does come down to um, trust, trusting the Lord. Like if I were to, if I were to leave my, my job in my church tomorrow, I'm always like, my joke has been, you know, I don't want to leave until I can say, I told you so about some stuff that I've been working on here, you know, but really I should be able to leave tomorrow and trust the Lord that, that he would continue to work through the church. Uh, It may not look the way that I would have um, pushed it to look or directed it to look, but the Lord will continue to work. So I think this question applies whether you are in a favorable situation or an unfavorable situation. And I also think it's an important question to ask on a regular basis. Even if I stay in this job for the next 10 years, I should be asking that question on a regular basis because it makes me do a gut check about who is who is ultimately um, trusted um, in, in getting the work done, which is the Lord. Do you ever get stuck wondering how to study a Bible passage? The Courage for Life Study Bibles for Women and the Courage for Life Study Bibles for Men have over 1,400 Bible studies. That's a Bible study on every page of Bible text. Access to the Filament Bible app lets you dive even deeper. If you download the app and you scan the page number, you can open up a world of resources, including over 25,000 additional study notes, hundreds of videos, and a full audio Bible. Start discovering at Courage for Life Bible That's courageforlifebible.com for incredible study notes and an incredible study Bible. Have you ever wondered what is God's heart towards you? In this noisy world, God's heart beats hard with love and mercy. But how can God share his heart with us when he doesn't have our attention? You're invited to spend 100 days discovering the beautiful, merciful heart of God with Overflowing Mercies, a new devotional by Craig Allen Cooper. The Lord is not ashamed of you or quick-tempered toward your faults. Each one of your weaknesses, faults, frailties, and failures does more to arouse God's love than to stir up His anger. If you could fathom in some small way how warmly God truly feels about you, the faintest grasp of His immeasurable affection would reduce you to tearful wonder and heartfelt gratitude. As God's mercies are new every single morning, overflowing mercies will continue to be a constant well of refreshing comfort, encouragement, and strength. It's perfect for personal quiet times, family and dinner table devotions, and small groups. Let this devotional help you get intentional, stay connected to God, and continue loving others. Order your copy of Overflowing Mercies, 100 Meditations on the Tender Heart of God today at moodypublishers.com or wherever great books are sold. Okay, the next one, I'm just going to prepare you. This is a tricky one. (laughs) (laughs) Sounds like one you should answer. Once again, Uh, JT and I have not seen the questions, and it feels super safe. I'll I'll take a first crack at it just so that I'll be the first one on recording. Uh, And you can walk away from it if you need to. Uh, Casey asks, can you all talk about alcohol? I feel like I'm having a crisis over this. I need to hear some wise discussion. Tanya asks, and cannabis too? Let's assume for discussion purposes that it's legal for both medical and recreational use at the state and federal level. Should it be lumped in with how we view alcohol use? I hear Christian responses to this all over the place from it's God's gift to help us live in a fallen world to it's an express ticket to hell. Lots of opinions out there, but not much honest or thoughtful discussion. Thanks for everything you do. Love your podcast and work being done through it. Okay. 
here's here's what we need. Uh, here's what I'm going to say right at the top. You are not going to get me on recording endorsing the consumption <laughs> of any drugs. <laughs> Just I'm, I'm, I'm not. I'm, I'm 100% not going to do it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that would include alcohol. I am not going to commend to you that you should drink alcohol. Right. You know why? Because like I don't care. I do, like I I'm not, and I don't want you to. Uh, it seems like. Uh, it seems like the jury is out on any of these things being healthy long-term for anybody. So just like there's that. I would say that if you're asking me, does the Bible expressly prohibit the wise and sober-minded consumption of alcohol? I don't believe that it does. I, I don't believe that that's what scripture does. I don't think it expressly, by expressly, I mean explicitly prohibits the wise and sober consumption of alcohol. Does it expressly prohibit drunkenness? Absolutely. Does it expressly prohibit gluttony in all its forms of which drunkenness is one? Absolutely. Uh, does it expressly prohibit kind of wantonness, like slothfulness of which alcohol can create in a person? Absolutely it does. So the Bible does not explicitly expressly prohibit alcohol's consumption in a wise and sober-minded way. Does that mean you should drink alcohol? No. Does that mean that officers of your church should drink alcohol? No. Does it mean that you can't have convictions about the prudence of drinking alcohol that are different from another person's? No. You can have all those things, and that would be totally fine, and the Bible creates space for that. But the Bible doesn't explicitly prohibit it. That's all I'm saying. When it comes to cannabis or marijuana, now there's only one of us that currently lives in a state that I'm hoping he'll have something to say about this. Emphasis on currently. It's coming. (laughs) Oh, yeah, sure. But I would say that there are some, I, I, I'm not, I'm actually not going to answer this question <laughs> because here's why. And I mean this genuinely, it is on our elders docket to think through together in the years ahead. And I, I like, I'm in a position where like, I can't answer this. I, I would not answer this question in a public way without feeling like I had the support of my co-pastors. So we'll have to think through this and we have to think through it in a way that, um, is submissive to the counsel of God's word and the, not just my authority as a pastor of this church, but I'm submissive to our authority as an elder team. And I need their wise counsel as well. I can't weigh in on it in a public way. I think the way to, I'll, I'll weigh in just a little bit because it's in my context. Uh, and, um, but I'm, I'm not going to weigh in. I'm, I'm going to try to weigh in the way you did, Kyle. I thought it was just so wise and helpful, your comments on on alcohol and the consumption of it. I think there's probably a lot of applicability. I don't know if it's a one-to-one correlation between alcohol and cannabis, but I, I really just appreciated your comments about, about that. I, I want to highlight a couple resources that I'm considering uh, as it relates to this question. The first would be a book called Cannabis and the Christian, What the Bible Says About Marijuana. It's authored by Todd Miles. He's a professor at Western Seminary. Uh, I'm about halfway through the book, so I don't feel like I can commend the book to you and say, yes, this, but I know Todd pretty well, and I, I think it's going to be a really good book and a, and a useful book for those of us that are uh, kind of put into the situation to have to consider this. They also, uh, he hosts a podcast that we'll just highlight real quick that I've been on a couple of times. It's called Food Trucks in Babylon. Patrick Schreiner used to host that with him, and, and they have a really helpful discussion about this where they're talking about some of the medical issues related to this, the theological issues, the ethical issues related to this, and maybe better than us answering this because we're, we've not spent as much time thinking about it as they have Consider consider some good sources like Todd Miles' book or Food Trucks and Babylon podcast on cannabis. Yeah, I would just say that pastorally speaking, if you're going to be you know teaching toward this in some capacity, 
no, none of the three of us can tell you what you should tell people they can and can't do, but we can always press people to the question of motive. Why do you want to, to, to do one thing versus another? Because the why matters a lot. And let's say for the sake of argument that, that you believe it is a wisdom issue. Wisdom is heavily situational, and that means that you should pay close attention to your own situation, certainly, but also the situation of others becomes paramount for us. Um, and so, you know, I think I mentioned in one of the previous um, recordings that we did, you know, the example of, am I going to offer a cocktail to someone that I know has a drinking problem? No. And so even if you were to make peace in your own conscience around the use of, of alcohol or marijuana, and I'm not saying, I'm not making a statement about whether you should or not, um, to, to then impose that on someone for whom it is an obvious risk category um, or to speak about it in a way that um, might cause them, you know, to, to sin uh, would, be, would be terribly wrong. That would be wrong, whether you use use or don't use either of those substances. So that's all I got. Don't smoke drugs, kids. <laughs> there we go. You heard it here first. Uh, Shuggy asks, reading is drudgery for me. There are several books I would like to read, but I seek shortcuts as much as possible, like listening to podcasts about it. All of you seem to like reading and read a lot. Is it innate or an acquired skill? Do you have tips to be a better reader? How can I not dislike reading so much? We may not read as much as you think we read. I think you read a lot, Kyle. I, yeah. I mean, I, I think I, I do read a lot. You'll go, you'll go, hey guys, what are you reading? And I'm like, I'm reading the same book I was reading the last time you asked this question. <laughs> and you're like, oh, I've read 48 books since then. <laughs> uh, but, the, I, but the way, and I, Kyle, I don't want to misrepresent you, so correct me if I'm wrong here. The way Kyle reads books is really a smart way to read books. He is not reading front to back, word for word, sentence for sentence, paragraph for paragraph, unless it's like a, a novel or, a, you know, some kind of, you know, specific Fun kind of a story. Yeah. He's reading for the argument and like he might read a 200 page book in four hours. And now that does not mean he's reading every single word and he can then read fast. He's just saying, oh, this is what the table of contents is. This is what the introduction says. This is what the conclusion says. Here's where the main high points of the argument are. And he's moving very fast, not because he's reading faster than you, but because he doesn't feel burdened by the, like Kyle can say, I read The Coddling of the American Mind, which is about a 190 page book. And he may have read 25% of the words in the book. Yeah, that's exactly right. But he read the book because he knows what it says. He knows what the argument is. He knows who the major players are. It's and about so, change. It is about changing how you think about reading. Mm-hmm. Like that is the primary diff. Like when people are like, "What's your best tip to read more books?" I'm like, "Read less of every book you read." That's right. Like when you, because everybody knows when you get to that place, like they're not making an argument here. They're filling something. They're giving an example. Mm-hmm. I know what the example is. Skip four pages mm-hmm. and get yep. back to the thesis, and you should feel comfortable doing that. Well, and then I do think, like you know, I can feel how time on social media or just screens erodes my attention span. So that seems like an easy thing to say is like, hey, maybe something that might help you get better at reading is to build up your your um, ability through, you know, incrementally like saying, hey, you know, before I do something else, I'm going to read half of this chapter. Or before I do something else, I'm now going to read a whole chapter each time I want to, you know, get on social media, whatever it is, and sort of build up your, your um, stamina there or rebuild it if you lost it. But also don't discount listening to books. That is not not reading a book. Like my husband exactly. and I have gone around and around uh, talking about this because he is a he became a huge consumer of books as soon as he recognized audiobooks as actually the OG way to, to hear a 
to learn something. Mm-hmm. Jonathan Pennington said at a recent seminar that he did for us, he was like, that's the original way of reading. Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah. literate cultures were built based upon oral uh, retelling of yeah. stories. And so nothing wrong with, with doing audiobooks or podcasts. And I would say too that like, don't think like a lot of people talk about reading as like digging and they're hoping they'll discover something. If your approach is reading as digging, then maybe you'll find, you'll find something, but it's going to take you a lot longer. If your approach to reading is finding, you'll read less and you'll find more. Mm -hmm. So my rule of thumb is the more enduring the work, usually meaning the older and more widely established its pedigree, the more of a work I'm responsible for reading in order to really feel like I have done justice to the work itself. I'm not speed reading confessions. It's enduring. Its pedigree is well-established. And almost everybody who reads it says you should read the whole thing. Mm -hmm. I'm going to read all of confessions and I need to read it in the way that it's written front to back, word for word, across. But if it's like a book that just came out, like let me give you an example of somebody I like. Mark Sayers' book just came out on non-anxious presence. I read everything Mark Sayers writes. I got the book yesterday. In one hour, I got everything from that book that I'm going to get from that book. Now, I don't say that to be to do an injustice to Mark. There's a lot of good in that book. The book would take me longer to read than one hour. But I read. I knew what I wanted from that book. I knew what I was looking to discover. Once I established the main argument, I knocked it out in 60 minutes front to back. That is possible for anybody, no matter how slow you read, if you know what you're looking for, if you know what you're looking to discover and find. Um, So I would just say, listen to books. Don't read as much of every book you pick up. And the older and more widely established the pedigree of a book is, the more you are responsible for reading the whole of the book. If it's a brand new book, you don't have a responsibility to read the whole thing. I would encourage you not to. Hannah says, I would love- I don't know how many questions there are. How many questions are there? Oh, we're just going to keep you on your toes. Um, <laughs> Hannah, I would love to hear from any, each of you, how you have gospel-centered conversations with close people in your life who are not believers. How do you talk about the gospel with non-Christians? Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, my typical um, approach is I'm a, I'm a crockpot. I'm not a microwave on this. Um, and I, I like for a lot of relational capital to be built before I would press hard into one of those conversations. But then if the, con- and, I, and I want the conversations to present them on their own, you know, like to not be something that I have forced that some of that's personality driven for me. And I fully acknowledge that. Like I am not, I would not call myself an evangelist in the sense that other people are evangelists. So um, and that doesn't mean that I don't need to press myself to have more active approaches to having these conversations. I definitely do. But typically I want to develop a relationship. And then if I'm asked a question, then I, I want to respond with a question. I want to spend a lot of time um, returning questions to that person to find out what's really at stake in the conversation without trying to assume that I know where they're coming from. Um, but what I'll often try to do, um, I had one of these conversations just a few weeks ago, is to show um, show the overlap in my experience of the world with that person's experience of the world so that they can feel the dissonance of that I arrived at a place of faith and belief where they might have arrived at a place of um, non-faith and, and, and unbelief. Uh, and then I don't like try to solve it for them. I just want them to sit in it for a while and then we can have another conversation. So long view for me. Yeah, I agree with that. I, I would also just say what well, maybe one other thing is, I, I 
resonate with everything Jen said, just in, even in terms of my own personality and the relationships that I'm trying to develop. Part of that is just praying for opportunities. And when you pray for opportunities, I don't mean to say that like, therefore the next day you're going to have a chance, but you're, I think you become more spiritually aware of opportunities. And then the Holy Spirit does provide a relational, relationally, capitalistically, I'm not even sure that's the right way to say it, driven ways to, to present the gospel to people. You want to be the kind of person that when, when a spouse dies or when a child's going through something, that you're their first call. Mm-hmm, and that's good. you're the first person that they want to talk to about the hope that you have in Christ Jesus which means living your life in ways that are evident to them and present to them. You're loving them. You're caring for them. You're sending them meals, all that stuff. And they'll be one of the first calls uh, that they make. That's really good. I am probably, um, I like both approaches. I like to straight up give people like, but I am also a on the spot evangelist. (laughs) Uh, You know, it doesn't take me long. And um, part of that is just like how I was raised. So just like, I just was raised next to a man who, and this is not like one of these approaches better than others. We need both of them. Some people do both. Some people are more inclined to one or the other and need to be pressed in the other direction. I just happened to be raised right next to a dad who like shared the gospel with everybody, like gas station, fill it up the pump next to another person. I mean, just like, so it was very, that's kind of how I thought it all worked. Mm -hmm. So that's just how my life has been. Um, So I like both. Uh, and uh, yeah, I, well, let me tell you, however you're going to share the gospel, share the gospel. <laughs> <laughs> I'm for all approaches, all methods, uh, except for bad ones. Um, Amy asks, would love to know manuscript or outline when giving a message. Outline. JT? Outline. And if I want to say something exactly right, I say it exactly right. And I have a color coding system that yeah, helps me same. know what I'm doing. Same. Look at that. Um, Jacob Panzer, I hope this is a fun question. Kyle Worley, I believe you've said plant and animal death is amoral, i.e. plant and animal death could occur before the fall because their life and death doesn't go against God's created order and will as human death does. Recently, a family member got upset by my choice to eliminate mice from my home via execution. Whoa. <laughs> <laughs> Did you like line them up and shoot them? Oh, execution. Blindfolded oh, them, gosh. gave them tiny little cigarettes. Oh, Jacob, I love that you chose execution instead of like termination yeah. um, uh, or pest control uh, instead of relocation. This brought about the discussion of whether plants and animals have souls. I'm curious to hear y'all's evidence on morality surrounding plants and animals. Okay. Pugs have souls. Mm. Mm. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, Jacob. Um, I'm just going to say, I don't think animals have souls and I don't think that I'm outside of the the history of Christian tradition to make that case. I think the animals are treated very differently in scripture than humans are. The same is true for plants. We are supposed to be good cultivators and subduers of God's created order, including plants and animals. We should not be abusing animals. We shouldn't be neglecting animals. We shouldn't be exploiting God's creation. All of those things are 100% true, and I believe them. But I do not believe them because I think plants and animals have souls. I don't think they have souls. They're not image bearers of God. I do not think that they, I don't think that the, the plants and animals you've known in your time here on earth will, will be in heaven as you know them. Wow. Um, Kyle, so, just letting us all down over mm. here. Just real gently. I'm sorry. I just, I, I don't think this is even remotely controversial uh, to say. I know that people have very you strong relationships. You have my dog. Yeah, so you're about to be haunted by Tilly and Tess, the OG pugs. <laughs> I I'm, I want everybody to love their animals. I just and I hope their animals live very long and happy lives. I, but I don't think they have souls. So so I I I don't. I'm less concerned with establishing whether animals have souls, and more concerned with establishing that animals have value. 
right? There we go. And so it's like, I I think that's the problem is you have to ask like into what ecosystem, no pun intended, are we asking this question? And I think that the modern church has a low view of creation care, possibly the lowest it's ever been. And so did you murder your mice? That's not the question I'm mainly concerned about so much as like in general, do Christians but he did. Do Christians give thought <laughs> to how they relate to to God's created world around them? Yeah. Are you thoughtless yeah. about it? Um, is it something is the is its existence um, simply something that terminates on your use of it? Or does it have a greater purpose and meaning? Uh, obviously you can tell that I have thoughts on that. And so if you take a consumeristic view to the world around you, I think you're anti-biblical. I do. Uh, and so if you're thinking of it in terms of stewardship, now you can make a stewardship argument for the execution of mice and you can make a stewardship argument for the catch and release approach to mice. Uh, and I think you can have your conscience at rest either way. Uh, but if you give no thought to it, that's where I'm concerned about you. Love it. Good. Uh, would love to hear from Jen. This is from Olivia. Uh, if you could talk to your 30-year-old self, what advice would you give her specifically related to teaching the Bible? I mean, hold on, but that would only be like three years ago, though, right? So, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, I would say the advice that I would give to myself is um, do this a lot with the right people. So um, when I was 30, I was like, gosh, how much longer do I have to teach seventh grade girls, you know? And really that was the perfect place for me to be. I was just starting to step into teaching other adults, but I was still at that church that I was at. I was younger than most of the other women that I would have been teaching. And there's nothing wrong with being a younger person teaching older people if you have put the work in, you know, to be able to stand up there and um, teach from, from good resources. But I did learn a great deal by taking the long road to to teaching peers or people who were older or younger than me, um, and so I would I think my advice to to thirty year old me would be um, remember that there's no room that is too small or too young or beneath your concern as you're thinking about where the Lord might use you to teach and go and be faithful in the place that's in front of you. It all gets used. All right, last question. What, Natalie? Yeah, right. Boom. Surprise. Uh, for any of you guys, what do you mean when we say we're evangelical? Meaning evangelical as opposed to what? From Natalie in Florida. Um, I'm just going to say, I don't think, <laughs> I, I'm not interested in recovering the term evangelical. Um, yeah, I knew, I knew this was going to be, I knew that JT would not like this. That's why I made it the last question. I, I'm not interested in it. If you, if you, if somebody asked me, is Mosaic an evangelical church? I would say, no, we're a confessional church. We're confession. We're a confessional church. If somebody says, are you an evangelical Christian? I'll often say, no, I'm a confessional Christian. I just, no, I just feel like, listen, you have abdicated. No, I have not. We, we the word has, and we did the, the the Christian community did it to itself. wasn't something that was imposed on us from outside. We did it to ourselves. So if if there was anything that has happened, it's that generationally the word has lost its its 
original cachet. So yeah, I mean, if somebody's coming to me like with David Bevington's evangelical quadrilateral and they're like, do you fit on this paradigm? Then I'd be like, yes, I do. But am I going around trying to recover? I Listen, I'm losing no sleep over how other people want to use the word evangelicalism any longer. Can I just get a little help here for those of us who are the everyman listening to the podcast? And I number myself among you at this moment. Could you give me the classical definition for evangelical? Because I will tell you, I never gave one single thought to the word until people started saying that we should ditch it. Like, I was just like, I don't, I don't really, I'm not sure what that means. I don't really care what that, does it mean Christian? What does it mean? What am I rejecting? Bebbington's quadrilateral for evangelicalism. He's saying that, so first of all, evangelicalism really comes from the Greek term euangelion. This is the gospel. Right. I mean, simple. But in terms of how it's developed theologically and sociologically over, let's just say, post-Reformation Christianity, it would be kind of summed up summed up, or uh, distilled into these four ideas, this quadrilateral that Bebbington gives us. Uh, belief in the Bible, that this is God's word. It's authoritative okay. for our life. It's the story of the world, and we submit ourselves to it. Number two, the cross. The cross is some, is the most definitive event in human history. This is where we find our redemption, our reconciliation to God, atonement, justification, the cross. Third, the concept of being born again, like that the cross and the giving of the Holy Spirit is something that needs to happen, that the cross isn't a concept that is meaningful for you until you've realized I'm a sinner in need of redemption, reconciliation, and ultimately regeneration. And then fourth, the fourth part of the quadrilateral, quadrilateral would be activism, that we want to be engaged in our world in, in, in biblically meaningful ways to, to extend God's, you could call it the cultural mandate or the Great Commission, to the ends of the earth. Yep. And almost nobody. And Kyle says he doesn't want to do that. <laughs> nope, that's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is that the word is used by almost everybody with little to no reference to any of those things. Yeah, unfortunately, the word has become a sociological reality, not a theological one, and it's used more for uh, – um, you know, kind of talking heads talking about what the evangelicals are doing or who what an evangelical is and how did the evangelicals vote. So unfortunately, there's lots of people identifying as evangelical that are no longer or never were evangelical. And then the world is identifying evangelicals as a voting block, not as a group of regenerate Christians who are full of the Holy Spirit. But I, I, I'm not at the point yet where I'm willing to forego the term. I think we need to keep using the term, recapture the term, retrieve the term, revive it, whatever it might be. Uh, because I think it's a biblical and meaningful term. And I, I don't know that we can say that, no, we aren't the euangelicals, the ones who believe in the good news of Christ, that he has crushed the head of the serpent. It's a biblical term that we have to keep. Okay. <sighs> yeah. So we Did have, I just convince you, Kyle? We have a yes from JT, keep it. We have a no from Kyle, dump Keep it, it with very clear definitions. And then we have, I'm just baffled. I just, I'm like, the, the word feels nonsensical to me at this point, and I have more important things to, to think about. Is that terrible? Bang. Mm -hmm. No. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so here we are ending yet another season in perfect I, harmony. <laughs> I, would, I would just say. I, my, I'll just say. I, you I'll just say. My, said that the Holy Spirit was filling people in the Old Testament. So how can you be trusted? I, I, I would choose. I would choose creedal, confessional, or biblical over evangelical. Creedal, confessional, I, I love those terms or too. biblical. Biblical? You would them. use the term biblical? Give me a break. I'm a biblical Christian. Yeah. Barf. Over evangelical? 
Yeah, because at least somebody would go like, well, what do the you The Bible mean? uses the word evangelical to describe people more than it uses the word biblical. <coughs> so why the Bible uses the word disciple to talk about Christians more than it uses I'm sorry, Kyle, you've pushed the JT button, and I think we should really just wrap it up before it gets any worse. Hey, listen, Patreons, if we make either came in after we compiled them uh but please feel free if we missed it please feel free to reach out to me on instagram we're going to do some instagram lives over the summer and i would be happy to just fold it in if we missed Uh, if we didn't then i'm glad we got to it hey these were great questions you're an amazing audience thank you for sticking with us season nine uh will be doctrine of god uh which is going to be really exciting so many great things to talk about with the doctrine of god and we're so grateful for your support so anyways hey bless you guys hags have a great summer um i'll write <laughs> it in the corner of your yearbook i'll write it in i'll write it in the corner of your yearbook you guys are awesome we hope you enjoyed the discussion grace and peace <laughs>